This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. This week's episode continues to educate the masses on the ketogenic phenomenon. Jim Abrahams is not only a notorious filmmaker, but a vocal proponent for the diet that is changing lives. Jim's son Charlie suffered from up to 100 seizures a day at age one. After extensive research, dedicated father Jim decided on a diet rich in fats and low in carbohydrates. With this ketosis approach, he was able to reverse the seizure patterns and watch notable improvement unfold before his very eyes. Jim's passion didn't stop there. He developed the Charlie Foundation in honor of his son's struggles and eventual triumph. His goal is to make more and more people aware of the benefits of a ketone-rich diet as a means to not only improve brain function, but a way in which to tackle some of the medical maladies that seem beyond our control. Jim Abrahams reminds us that our medical destiny cannot be deferred. It is something we and we alone must face, be it with the assistance of Western medicine, the personal responsibility of eating our way to health, or a combination of both. One thing is certain, though, Jim's choice to move through these challenges with purpose and ownership saved the life of his son, Charlie. This is episode 142. What's happening, Power Athlete Nation? Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. This is Denny. I'm joined with John, Luke, and Text. And today our guest is Jim Abrahams. He's the executive director of the Charlie Foundation for Ketogenic Therapies. And uh, this foundation was founded around 1994 to provide information about diet therapies for people with epilepsy, um, other neurological disorders, and tumorous cancers. So we're excited to have um, Jim on. We've been really kind of bringing in some top-notch guests talking about the ketogenic diet. I think it's fascinating, and I'm excited for the show. So, Jim, thanks for taking the time to talk some shop with us. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. The more people learn about this, the better off we'll all be. Uh, Why don't we just kind of get the ball rolling and you can maybe tell us a little bit about your journey and and how the Charlie Foundation came to be and, you know, just what you guys are doing, um, bottom line. Great. Well, so our journey started in 1993 when my youngest kid, at the age of one, started having seizures. Um, and he kept getting having more and more seizures. We kept trying more and more drugs. Um, my main occupation is in the movie business. And I mention that only because I uh, knew a lot of people who worked at a lot of studios and with a lot of agencies who contributed to hospitals. And so we got Charlie into see many of the leading pediatric neurologists in the United States. He had 
seizures in the arms of the head of pediatric neurology at UCLA, at Los Angeles Children's Hospital, Boston Children's Hospital, Seattle Children's Hospital, and several more. And they were all in agreement of <clears throat> with what we should do. We should give them more drugs or we should try a brain surgery. Um, and that was our only hope. So uh, Charlie, at the age of one, went through every available drug and drug cocktail <clears throat> in 1993. He had a brain surgery which uh, failed, and we were pretty much without hope. So um, one day when we were, and this was pre-internet days, believe it or not, and um, so one day when we were at UCLA where his main pediatric uh, neurologist worked, I stopped at the medical library at UCLA and started doing some research, not so much to try to uh, find a cure for him. I mean, the top doctors in the world had told us that he was destined for seizures, drugs, and in a lifetime of what they call progressive retardation. So I went to the library pretty much not to try to find a cure, but to try to find how do families make it through such a bleak prognosis, and how do kids with that kind of medical destiny survive? What are their lives like? And when I got to the library, very quickly I came across something called the ketogenic diet. The diet had been developed in 1920s um, at uh, um, the Mayo Clinic, and for decades was one of the first therapies they tried with kids like Charlie who had intractable seizures. And um, in every decade from different hospitals and different doctors, um, the, the re results were amazingly similar. Basically, one-third of the kids who went on a ketogenic diet had their seizures go away. Another third were significantly improved. In other words, fewer seizures, fewer drugs, and for about a third it didn't work. Um, and uh, I, the again, this was 1993. There was actually an article published in Epilepsia, which is the premier um, medical journal about epilepsy, that had been published in 1992 from Johns Hopkins Hospital, in which they chronicled 58 consecutive kids who were as sick as Charlie, who they had put on the ketogenic diet, and 29% of them. Uh, became seizure-free, and another 30% were significantly improved. So I called the doctor at Johns Hopkins Hospital um, and sent him Charlie's medical records. He said, bring Charlie to Baltimore and we'll try the diet. He thought he was a good candidate. We did, and uh, at the time, Charlie was having dozens, frequently as many as 100 seizures a day. He was on four medications that were affecting him very badly. And uh, when we put him on the ketogenic diet, his seizures stopped within about two days, and he was, um, he was off all his medications within a month. Um, and that was 1990, the beginning of 1994. So once the dust settled and we, you know, that's kind of a miraculous outcome. 
and we started to look around and we saw, Nancy, my wife and I, saw that there's a world epilepsy population of over 60 million people. Most of those people start having their seizures as children and far less than 1% ever hear about diet therapy. So that's why we started the Charlie Foundation in 1994 to get the word out so other people could be uh, have access to this information. It, um, thanks for coming on the podcast. I just, uh, you know, some sitting here listening to it. Uh, can you describe a little bit of the mechanism for the seizures? I mean, obviously it's a, it's a neurological issue, but I just don't know enough about, you know, uh, like the neurological or more importantly, the mechanism for the seizures and, you know, help key connect some of the dots for that and why a ketogenic diet and, you know, primarily the use of ketones would, you know, obviously stay, uh, start these off. Right. So, um, it's long been known since the time of Hippocrates that fasting is beneficial for the brain. Um, and I mentioned that in, at the Mayo Clinic in 1921 when they developed the, the diet, they started to fast kids, but obviously we can't fast indefinitely. So they developed the ketogenic diet, which has no sugar, uh, reduced uh, carbohydrates, and uh, is high in fat to mimic the effects of fasting. Um, and mechanistically, what that means is when we normally, we, all of us, burn glucose for energy. But uh, with the ketogenic diet, because there, there is no sugar and there are very limited uh, carbohydrates, you're forced to burn fat for energy. And the byproduct of burning fat is you produce ketone bodies. <clears throat> and it is long known that these ketone bodies have a beneficial effect on the brain. <clears throat> the actual specific mechanism has been defined and it exists in, in modern science and I could uh, send you the explanation, but um, as a layman, and believe me, I sit through lots and lots of these talks about mechanisms and stuff, but I not only can't explain the exact mechanism, I don't understand it. It's really complicated, but there is definitive science behind why ketone bodies benefit the brain, I mean, including, including like a, a neuroprotective aspect of the diet. Well, we, we also know that in an environment where, you know, glucose and ketones are both present that the, actually the brain will, you know, select out the ketones as kind of a preferred fuel source. Um, right. So, I mean, obviously the Charlie Foundation started with epilepsy and, um, you know, uh, just basically making these diet modifications. We're able to, you know, I mean, as a parent, I mean, give your child's life back, but also kind of give you yours. But, um, right. I think it's kind of started you down a really interesting road. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, I mean, it's just like everything in life. You know, you go down from one thing like, hey, we're going to deal with epilepsy. And next thing it opened up and just kind of cruising your guys' website. I mean, there was things on autism, um, you know, right. cancer. I mean, there's just a million different avenues for this. I mean, uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, where this, you know, just starting in epilepsy and where it's kind of taken you over the last 20 plus years? Yeah. And to be honest, the answer to your question is sort of, the great hope for um, diet therapy for epilepsy. Basically, what what's happened, I'd say, in the last 10 or 12 years, um, 
as the diet for epilepsy back in you know 93 Hopkins was about the only hospital in the in the world that had a ketogenic diet uh, program but um, because of the success of the diet and knowledge about the diet today there are about 250 hospitals worldwide who have ketogenic diet programs and that has uh, spiked interest in other uses of the diet. So we really had nothing to do with that uh, uh, other than uh, the neurology community kind of figured and the health community kind of figured um, if it's so successful with epilepsy then can it be successful with other neurological disorders. And the, one of the early fellows who, who started to get, take interest in that is a doctor from uh, Boston, his name is Thomas Seyfried. And he started doing research with a ketogenic diet and malignant brain tumors. And, and there have been outstanding results and, and dramatic results. And then so that has coupled, uh, has triggered interest in the autism community, as you mentioned, and in the ALS community, um, and just the healthy diet community. Um, about other uses of the, the diet, and again, the reason I'm, I, I think the the kickback to the epilepsy community is the day is not distant when every hospital is going to have to have a ketogenic diet program because there are going to be so many uses, there are going to be so many disorders for which it's beneficial that they're they're going to have to have a staff of ketogenic diet dietitians so that they can offer diet therapy to a range of, of patients and that will again make it more accessible to, to the epilepsy community. Jim, do you, do you yourself follow a ketogenic diet or have you tried it? You know, that, that's funny. It's, it's, um, so the, the classic ketogenic diet um, is very restrictive and it involves and I, and I should caution people who are talking talking about the who are interested in the diet that that Charlie was on um, that you need to work in conjunction with a, a medical team. You need a neurologist and most importantly a trained ketogenic diet dietitian to help calculate meal plans. In other words, there are lots of variables involved, including ideal weight for height and um, activity level and any medications you might be on. So it, it, it gets uh, complicated and you, and you need uh, dietary support. Um, but the less restrictive versions of the ketogenic diet, like modified versions of the ketogenic diet, um, are safe and effective and can be used by any of us. And, this is a long answer to your question, but yes, I've learned through over the years through Charlie's experience um, what is now actually becoming sort of standard uh, information about uh, nutrition, and that's that sugar sucks um, and that refined carbohydrates don't do us any good either. So uh, years ago, I think my whole family uh, including Charlie's mom and brother and sister, started eliminating sugar from our diet um, and 
minimizing as much as possible refined carbohydrates and going to protein. Um, and there are lots of good protein sources and more uh, vegetables than, than fruits, but vegetables and fruits. And we're, we're not afraid of fat. Hey, uh, um, good. can you talk a little bit about what Charlie's diet was? I mean, we're obviously pretty familiar with a modified keto. I just kind of wonder oh, yeah. uh, if you could kind of outline, like, you know, I mean, because uh, how old was he when he started on the ketogenic diet? So he, Charlie was uh, one. Wow, when he so. Started on, yeah, he was just a, a, a baby still. He was just before his second birthday. When so he as a one-year-old to get a, yeah, can you just talk a little bit about him? I'm just kind of fascinated by, um, yeah, I mean, obviously having done ketogenic diets for a long time and then also it uh, helped people with it and discussed it. I'm just interested to know, uh, you know, a little bit more ins and outs when you take it to, uh, you know, more for just, you know, hey, I want to try this to something like, hey, I got to adopt this diet to save my life and basically give me the right to grow up and live a normal life. Exactly. Yeah. So the classic ketogenic diet, Charlie, for most of the, he was on the diet for five years. And for most of the time, he was on a, a four to one ratio of fats to proteins and carbohydrates, um, which means his diet was 90% fat which meant that it was not nutritionally adequate uh, and that he needed to take vitamin supplements. And that's why it's so important if you're going to do a classic ketogenic diet to work with a trained dietitian. We were fortunate in our day to have access to the dietitian from uh, Johns Hopkins who had at that time 40 years of experience with the diet. So she, you know, was very helpful. Um, and then today, he, um, he he was on the diet for five years. Our experience was that, um, and, and most people have the experience, that after a couple years on the diet, if you've been as successful as Charlie was, in other words, uh, no seizures, no drugs, you can take the person off the diet, and he can go back to eating a normal diet, and he'll be just fine. But that's not what happened with us after the first two years when we uh, weaned Charlie off the diet onto, you know, a typical diet, uh, his seizures came back. So we immediately put him back on the diet for another couple of years. And, and again, when, when we initiated the diet the second time, his reaction was identical. So there's a real cause and effect um, in his seizures one way. So he stayed on the diet for another couple of years. Then again, we tried to wean him off and the seizures came back a third time. So third time we put him back on the diet and that time he was on for a year. And when we weaned him off, he was fine. And that was in 1997, I'm thinking 1997. And he's never had a, another seizure uh, or taken another anti-epileptic drug to this day. He's a, uh, preschool teacher in, in West Los Angeles now. Um, so, I mean, 90% fat, 10% protein, I mean, obviously uh, super high on the fat scale. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about the food quality? Like, um, you know, obviously, like, I mean. And I like, guess there's also a disclaimer, like, yeah. like Jim said, 
this isn't for everybody. Yeah, no, no, no. No, no, no. no. Well, and, and that's, I, I think, what I'm trying to get at, like that, you know, obviously he's talking about a, you know, and there's different levels of the ketogenic. I mean, we do a cyclical keto, which is, you know, has carb refeeds. And, you know, sometimes uh, when you start getting into it more for, you know, kind of health benefits, like, mm -hmm. um, Jim, I don't know if you know my story, but I, um, I played in the NFL for 10 years. And upon retirement, um, you know, a couple of years ago, they had a, you know, I had a good friend who got diagnosed with some early onset Alzheimer's uh -huh. and I had a bunch of friends that were committing suicide and just a lot of bad stuff happening. And so there was a big study for NFL players about brain concussions. And I was in one of the studies and ended up coming, um, you know, coming out and realizing after, you know, 10 plus years and, you know, as a starter in the NFL, um, that, you know, I had some obviously some damage to my brain and, uh, I ended up contacting a good friend of mine who's a doctor of organic chemistry at Harvard. And, you know, hit him up and said, hey, uh, you know, Matt, I'm, you know, this issue got presented to me today, what should I do? And I think he pulled like 10,000 research studies on uh, every type of brain, you know, traumatic brain injury, acute, you know, chronic, the whole deal. And he came back and said, um, everything we have just points to a ketogenic diet, um, you know, high-level fish oil, ketogenic diet, and, you know, remove inflammation within the gut, and the, theoretically the brain should heal itself. And yeah. so uh, I went on a pretty strict keto diet. Uh, I didn't think I, you know, I, I didn't eat a carb for over a year. I think it was almost 12 months, wow. and I came out the other side of it, and uh, you know, was night and day different because of it. So uh, I kind of just gravitated towards it, and I and I had been exposed to a modified keto uh, through a, a doctor named uh, Mauro De Pasquale, who we've had on our podcast early on in my NFL career. So I'd always kind of tinkered with it and done some carb cycling, but I always think it's um, it's pretty interesting. And where this all ties in is we are. Uh, we about four or five years ago we started a charity called Wade's Army, which is uh, you know to try to raise money in the fight against neuroblastoma, which is um, you know a, a pediatric cancer that starts in the brain tissue, yeah. and it just aff uh, affects you know young children like Charlie and the little boy we lost uh, Wade De Bruin, uh, lost his fight you know very early on before he was two, and um, so the charity was starting his honor. But we've been trying to uh, you know go out and actually. Um, get some studies funded about using ketogenic diets as, uh, you know, in conjunction with the, with the other therapies because, um, you know, these kids end up losing a lot of weight from, you know, obviously the cancer and the chemo and the doctor's recommendation is just eat, feed them whatever they want. And they end up just feeding the kids Skittles, sugar, you know, pop tarts, uh, you know, anything they can. And of course, you know, you give a, a 12 month old or a 10 month old or even an 18 month old child, the opportunity between I'm going to eat a bag of, um, you know, cotton candy opposed from something else, and the parents just want the kids to eat because they're just so happy, this guilt deal. And so we've been trying to, you know, actively get out there and campaign and be like, whoa, 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 like the foods you guys are feeding these kids, you wouldn't feed to a healthy baby. Why are you letting it feed to a baby? You know, and I understand the idea about weight gain, but in the same right, I would, you know, I have a hard time, you know, feeding kids who are already sick, uh, a diet that, you know, would be, you know, I mean, I, I frankly, I believe is, is, uh, you know, inflammatory and exasperates the problem. So, um, that's kind of how, you know, we've really got into this and we've been kind of trying to find it. And the, the more difficult part is we can't find an FDA approved study that will even discuss diet in terms of cancer. Or like nutrition and oh. the nutrition therapy concept. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I have a lot of reaction to what you're saying. Number one, congratulations for figuring out you got to change what you eat. Um, there is science now. I don't, do you know, 
Tom Seafried, the doctor I was talking to, or Adrian Schreck from um, uh, Barrow Institute in mm. Phoenix? No, I, I don't, but I will fully expect as soon as we get off this podcast that we'll connect on an email and yeah, we'll get, yeah. we will well, get in touch with them. Because, yeah, I mean, I'll... yeah, I mean, we, uh, uh, you know, I think why we were excited to get you on the podcast is, you know, here's a situation where, you know, you know, and, and it's always amazing, like, um, I guess people do things for, for selfish reasons and then, like, they get in and they realize, like, wait a minute, this is so much bigger and, and I don't mean selfish in a bad way. It's like, hey, I got to. Uh, I got to help my child and, you know, as a parent, you'll do whatever you can. And, you know, especially taking your baby in and seeing him give them, you know, what is it like modafinil and like, um, you know, all these different epileptic drugs are, you know, scary to give them. And, um, you know, now here's a situation where you do it, you take a look and you're like, man, uh, this is working and it has worked. And we've known about this, uh, you know, diet modification, ketogenic diet for the last, I mean, I mean, you, you talked about it, them using it in therapies in the 20s. I mean, they did uh, the study with uh, Stephenson uh, where the guy, um, you know, was up living with the Eskimos and came back, and they thought that nobody could live without carbohydrate. He came back and said, I haven't eaten a carb in 10 years, and they put him in, like, a lab and watched him because they thought he was lying, and the guy was fine. Yeah. And so, I mean, some of the early ketogenic studies, or, I mean, I, I have all the original stuff. It's pretty, pretty fascinating with how they did it, but... Uh, you know, I mean, they were using this stuff for a long, long time in terms of treating, you know, narcolepsy, epilepsy, I mean, a bunch of di- different brain disorders. And even, um, you know, we had Dr. Fred Hatfield on our podcast who got diagnosed with cancer and did a ketogenic diet and they, you know, and ended up beating it that way. So, um, you know, there's some really, really amazing uh, information about this stuff. And, uh, and for some reason, uh, conventional medicine seems well, to be fighting us. And yeah, I think that's well, why we're doing these things. Yeah, listen. Um, I think after many years of uh, being involved in this, I can point you to a pretty simple reason why conventional medicine is fighting this. You know, um, I've often said, you know, that the the biggest setback to the ketogenic diet, the only people who profit from the ketogenic diet are the patients. Um, There's a huge industry making these drugs for cancer and for epilepsy and all these other uh, disorders, and that's who's fighting you. Um, And, you know, I I should also add that whereas I get sort of flummoxed trying to, it's over my head to try to understand the specific mechanisms of diet and epilepsy, figuring out the the diet with... um, with glioblastoma is pretty simple. I mean, these tumors, these brain tumors, derive their energy from sugar. It's that simple. And so if you deprive a a, a body of sugar, and that, so I actually, I can feel my adrenaline start to flow when you tell me about these kids who they're feeding Skittles to. I mean, to me, that's sort of knowing what everybody knows today, knowing what the medical community knows today, that's kind of abusive. Well, I mean, that's that's the way I look at it. I mean, I, you know, uh, I got forwarded by uh, one of the, the ladies who, you know, we work with in terms, you know, who lost her little boy. Uh, she forwarded me a website called Cancer Dietitian. In there, she states that, you know, there's no conclusive proof that sugar, uh, you know, that cancer lives off of sugar and all cells live off of sugar. And I like, 
I sent her an email and I was like, first of all, your science is a mess. Um, our bodies don't live off of sugar. Cells live off of glucose, but they also live off of other things. And the body can convert not only fat and protein through gluconeogenesis into right. glucose. So right. the fact that you're making a one-to-one -one that your body needs sugar is complete bullshit. And, uh, and frankly, uh, we know that cancer lives off of sugar. I mean, cells live off of sugar. That right. if you remove it, it usually stops growing. I mean, it's like they found that if they um, actually starved and fasted cancer patients, the cancer didn't grow. Exactly. I mean, you know, so it's, I mean, it, it, you know, like um, case in point, my uh, uh, a relative, I mean, I have right now is going through, had just got diagnosed with stage four uh, esophageal cancer mm -hmm. and uh, couldn't eat. So they hooked her up to a glucose drip. And then yeah. they wonder why it's growing faster. And they were like, we can't believe the rate it's growing. Yeah. And uh, my dad called me and I'm like, it's because, I mean, you guys are hooking, you guys aren't feeding anything other than ice chips and you have a pure glucose drip. And you're wondering by why. Way, by the way, this science goes back uh, to the 1930s. I'm trying to think of the guy's name. But this guy, Warburg, Otto Warburg, um, talked about this very subject in the 1930s and won a Nobel Prize. Uh, talking about sugar, and he he uh, had this theory about glycolysis, and so what what you're saying today goes back to the to the 1930s. And again, my the only conclusion I can draw after the last 22 years of being involved in the world of diet therapy is that there are forces at work in our healthcare system beyond good health, and they have to do, and, and nobody's ever surprised when, when I say that, but there are huge hospitals, our businesses, just like any other business, and they need a bottom line, and some of these cancer therapies and epilepsy, there's an epilepsy treatment that they use for little kids called ACTH, hormone therapy, that um, costs $8,000 a day, and most kids are on it for two weeks to a month, and these are babies, you know, six months old. Jesus. So if you have a chance to cash in that way or change what somebody eats, and then, you know, what business is, is going to... Well, cancer, uh, cancer therapy and, uh, and the cancer drugs, uh, whether it be from research, production, to end user, if you look at all everything, yeah. Uh, I just saw the other day it was uh, over 15 billion yeah. in, in, uh, annual. in annual cancer. Like that is in treatments, production. Like that's what like the ecosphere of in terms of treating cancer is. Uh, I mean, 15 billion. So I, you know, and I've I've run into people that were like, oh, you know, do you believe that the world is so inhumane that if uh, if we could cure the stuff, we wouldn't. And I was like, I think we abandoned, uh, we replaced ideology with humanity a long, long time ago. And because yeah. if we had some humanity and less ideology, we probably wouldn't be in most of these problems. Yeah, and, this guy, uh, you know, this, this guy Tom Seafried, who, who, you know, when we're done with this, I'll email you a contact and, and some of his articles, who's been on the leading edge of this whole idea of. of Diet for Cancer says there are more people who profit from cancer treatments than who die from cancer. Man. It's, uh, yeah, it's... It, that's, that's sad. You know, is that is that the, the, the state we're in 
You know, is that is that society right now just well, well, I mean, blindly think, overlooking this? You well, know, this kind think of about it, Den- Denny. It's it's I, and and I go back to it that we've replaced ideology where there's this like idea that's greater than the good opposed from the actual humanity of taking care of people. I mean, so uh, you know, and, and if you think about this, and this is dude, this is the thing that kind of blows me away because you always hear people say this where it's like, well, it, you know, if it's uh, you know somebody else, and I, you know. We don't subscribe to that. What do we subscribe to? You know, if it's not me, who is it then? And it's, um, you know, here, here's a situation where, you know, uh, uh, Jim's son's sick, and he's like, i got to help him. So what does he do? He goes to a library, sits down, he finds us, and we're going to do this. And then he goes forward, and he actually cures his son. I mean, that, like, to me, that is uh, empowering, and how every parent should look at it, instead of just going to the doctor and just being like, okay, let's do this. I mean, There's nothing we can do. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing we can do. Okay, we'll just... You're here in the bed, so what we're going to do is we're going to manage you until you pass on because there's nothing we can do. Yeah. Um, you know, and, like, to me, uh, that is, a, a, you know, not even, you know, that's so far on the side of failure. But, I mean, it's really how conventional wisdom and conventional medicine is. I mean, you know, you go to, you know, as a doctor, um, you know, people go to med school and then, you know, people come to them and they're uneducated and they don't know. Or, more importantly, they haven't poured in or done the research, so they just instantly put their faith within the medical community and assume that the person who I'm standing to who's wearing the white coat that has EMD next to their name is all-knowing, all you know, omnipotent person that has researched this. They know everything, and, and, they will, and they can be trusted, and they will provide me with the best information because they are the smartest people on the planet, and they're here right. to help me, which we know isn't the case. And the thing I always laugh about is I went to school with a bunch of guys who are doctors who are complete fucking dipshits. I wouldn't fucking pay them to fill up my car with gas. <laughs> but you know what? They were fairly smart. They were able to get through med school and see cause and effect because what we've effectively done is created a medical system where we can mask everything. Case in point, you know what? You're out of shape. You're 100 pounds overweight. Uh, you can't control your blood sugar. So instead of getting you to lose weight and uh, modify your diet and try to become more healthy, what we're going to do just give you an injection or a pill. So now we've given you insulin because you're type 2 diabetic. But you know what? You don't have to modify a thing that you're eating because you know what we'll do? We'll just keep giving you insulin. Oh, you have pain. All right, well, you know, maybe your back's a little messed up. Maybe, I mean, you just saw the thing with Jim McMahon where they thought Jim McMahon was on the verge of death. I mean, ALS, all these problems. They take him to the doctor and find out he was out of alignment, and they, they did a bunch of spinal alignment, and he's fine. So instead of looking at it and being like, hey, let's x-ray this guy's spine and see if that maybe something's out of alignment, that there's something maybe we could do. And, dude, if you ever talk to conventional doctors about chiropractic, they think it's quackery. And I'm like, dude, so wait a minute. Just You have a guy like Jim McMahon whose atlas and neck was messed up. They straighten him up, and he's fine. But yet you've been pumping this dude full of every drug to try to manage his pain instead of going out and fixing root causes. And, um, you know, and it's it, it's like um, uh, it, it's... It's such a broken system that the position that we're in today is if you don't have an exorbitant amount of money to go out and figure out how to fight this stuff or at least maybe a, a, a Wi-Fi connection in some Google, then what you effectively do is you go to conventional wisdom that all they do is they mask your problems. If you get sick, uh, all we'll do is we'll just manage you until you perish on and then we'll just sweep you past and go back. And it is a terrible state. And I know there's a lot of doctors that don't feel like that. But I, I really believe in terms of, you know, people making active life changes and life decisions. I mean, you know, it's it just, uh, I'm just disgusted with the whole thing. I mean, this is probably the best time talking to me about it, but I'm just. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, but, you know, we're completely on the same page. What I, 
and I think that it's really important that people hear this because the the subtext to everything we're saying is that you can't defer your medical destiny to anyone else. You know, we're largely in charge of our own medical destinies. And it's much easier to think, oh, I'm going to walk into a doctor, he's going to give me a pill, or he's going to give me a, a, some remedy, and I don't have to be in charge. It, it, so it's a little daunting to understand that we're in charge of our medical destinies. But on the other hand, <clears throat> once you get there, it's empowering. You know, I, I can control this. I don't, I don't have to be held hostage by my diabetes or my epilepsy or my brain cancer or, um, and I was going to mention also traumatic brain injury because TBI, traumatic brain injury, is one of the um, uh, neurological disorders that is benefited by a ketogenic diet. So I wasn't all that surprised to hear how much better you were doing after um, you you put yourself on the ketogenic diet. Uh, they had a 30 for 30 with the Chicago Bears, and dude, they had Jim McMahon on there, and he was like yeah. in a wheelchair and a walker, he had dark glasses. I mean, they were talking about, you know, he had early onset Alzheimer's, and they were trying to treat him, and like, you know, I mean, they made it sound as if he was on his final days, and he ended up having some doctors reach out to him, and he went to, uh, I can't remember the exact uh, this, but it was basically a, uh, spinal realignment, and they found out he was, you know, his atlas, and he was really out of alignment. It was pushing on his uh, cervical cord, and the cervical spine was kind of teed out, and um, just had a bunch of neurological issues kind of, uh, from it, and they ended up fixing and realigning him, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden, he, he said in, like, the comment was, in 20 minutes, I felt as if somebody had flushed all the shit out of my body, and he goes, he got off, and he was like, I'm a new person. And so, like, here is it's just the counter medical <clears throat> culture treatment. Well, you know? well and, and, and I think for a long time, you know, uh, uh, the traditional, you know, kind of MD doc, uh, who really only has, and I, this is the thing that really drove me crazy with, um, you know, as a pro athlete, you go to the orthopedist and they either offer you, they give you three, three choices: either take a pill and manage it that way, or I'm sorry, four choices: take a pill and manage it, don't do anything. So just manage the pain by not doing anything and probably take a pill or uh, have surgery to have us try to fix it or we'll replace the joint. And I remember being like, that's it. Like there's nothing else. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the doctor's like, Nope, that's all. That's all we got. And I was like, well, I need to find some people that can give me more than that. And that's when I ended up meeting Dr. Bueller and uh, you know, we looked at prolotherapy and PRP and ACS and you know, you start going through all these different therapies and um, you know, and in a way, as a, you know, because I, I, I believe that there is, that we have the ability to, to heal ourselves and fix ourselves and more importantly, kind of stay, you know, starve these things off or really just avoid them with just some basic maintenance, like get some chiropractic done, stretch, work out, you know, it's kind of the, uh, we talked to Dr. Stu McGill about the back and I asked him, I'm like, you know, how do you avoid a back injury? He's like, don't sit too much, get out, walk around, lift some weights, eat, sleep. You know, don't cheap out and, and, and only buy your bed from the Goodwill. Like, spend a few bucks, sleep on a nice bed. Goodwill bed, that's low. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, that you know, and, and like, we had a great conversation. He's like, you know, you spend more time in your bed than you do anything uh, like uh, like a vehicle. Mm -hmm. But people will spend $100,000 on a vehicle, but yet cheap out and won't spend a few hundred bucks on a bed. And he's like, you spend more time in bed. I mean, so 
he's like, it, it's it's the age old like, hey, I um, I have a really you know nice refrigerator. I got a five thousand dollar refrigerator, let's say, but yet I, I won't spend any money on food. So it's kind of a uh, you know, I, I just mm-hmm. confusing to me. So Jim, what uh, you know, we some of this has been some doom and gloom stuff, and I know there's kind of a sil- silver lining in this. I mean, what are some of the I guess the most moving success stories. I mean, Charlie's story is amazing in itself, but what else has the Charlie Foundation done for some families? Uh, do you have any any like uh, uh, prominent stories that you want to share with us? You know, it's been the main deal is the guy at works. So we get there isn't a day that goes by now where I get two types of emails. I either get, "Wow, it works!" You know, we got our kid back. This is, you know, thank you, that kind of stuff. Or I get, my kid is sick. Um, he's failed eight different medications. Um, this is the first I hear about diet therapy. Can you point me in a direction? And those are literally, those are the two emails. I can send you emails I get today. So the people who get to it and their kids get better are, you know, I know the feeling. It's like, there's no way to measure the gratitude, but still uh, very, you know, as I said earlier, there's 60 uh, million people worldwide with epilepsy and far less than 1% ever get information in particular, accurate information about how changing their diet can benefit them. Um, and getting back a little bit to what you guys were saying before too, I here's a distinction that I draw. You know, if if somebody has the information and says, you know, this is too big a deal. Yeah, I really don't want to exercise. I really would prefer to keep eating Skittles. Whatever, that's their decision. And I say, well, okay, I wouldn't do that, but it's your life. Go ahead. What what really gets me going? is when people don't have the accurate information and and they're not given accurate information or even choose not to seek out accurate information about whatever is bothering them and that and that's a big that's a big difference I, I think that when you when any of us sees a physician if there is something known to the physician there should be an obligation for that physician to tell you about it. You know, you shouldn't have to find out. Um, there's something called um, standard of care. And legally in the United States, the standard of care means a physician is required to tell you whatever, you know, a few of his colleagues would tell you under the same circumstances. So that if, if, you, if you get sued and he goes to court, he can pray to a couple other doctors to the standard and say, yeah, I would have said the same thing under the same circumstances. And unfortunately, that's the standard of care in the United States today. Ideally, from my point of view, the standard of care would be that a, a, a process of informed joint decision making, where a medical expert is required to tell his patient the alternatives that are available and then between between them they can arrive at a decision that's not what goes on you know we all hear a litany of with every with many different diseases um, where 
um, informed joint decision making doesn't take place. Well, I mean, uh, and you know, what's sad is that we are in a society now where, you know, like let's say a doctor does make a recommendation that is, you know, alternative or outside the realm of, you know, let's say, uh, you know, what the American Medical Association or conventional doctors are saying, and somebody goes out and tries it and something positive does not happen, then all of a sudden the doctor ends up in a lawsuit. Well, they told me about this. Mm -hmm. right. So, I mean, we're, we're in this, like, weird liability where, you know, the, the doctor almost says, hey, you know what, like, here's the basic tools that we've been presented as per the American Medical Board, and my peers have basically said that this protocol is, uh, you know, what I have to work with, and, you know, anything outside that has not been cleared and, and like, uh, right. opens him up to liability. So if you think about it for them as doctors in terms of not wanting to get sued, it's almost like it, you know, hey, here's the here's the basic, you know, recipe that we've been provided and anything that deviates from this might open me up to liability. So therefore I'm not going to actively do it. Now if you want to sign off liability and then leave here and then you want to go out and adventure on your own, you're more than fine, but I will not recommend that. And I think that's the position we're in, and then most people are bound to insurance where, you know, you have an insurance carrier that's like, uh, I'll only pay for, for what they're doing at the hospital, and then that's what the doctor gives you, and most people, you know, for whatever reason, that's the only standard they have. So, I mean, we're, we're in a strange situation where, you know, there is, uh, you know, no, you know, people don't take any personal responsibility for anything, so therefore, uh, if you don't take personal responsibility, now I'm not going to be responsible for, for that, and it's... Um, I mean, it's it, it's a scary deal where you know, and I'm sure for for you guys, especially with Charlie, um, you know, you had these doctors that were like, well, we know that these drugs have been tested to work, and you're like, well, what about a diet modification? They're like, well, that's outside the realm of what we practice. We don't deal with that. And you're like, well, what do you think? Do you want to try? And they're like, well, we don't know. Uh, we can't make a recommendation either way. And so, I mean, that's where. Uh, you know, almost like, um, you know, just the liability thing is just killing it. So, I mean, we're in a, in kind of a, uh, you know, I always think we're, we're small pawns in a greater, you know, uh, a greater chess game between, you know, insurance companies trying to, you know, obviously with premiums, money, you know, how much money is spent here and there, and you have hospitals and you have all these different insurance. And it's, uh, it's a bad situation because, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, uh, you know, who wins, and, you know, like I said, ideally, you know, if we didn't have so much ideology and we had more humanity, people would be like, hey, I just want to help these people and by any means necessary, and if there's something out there that helps them, then that's where we need to go, and unfortunately, um, you know, it doesn't work like that anymore, and, and so it takes people like like you to be like, you know, hey, I'm going to be proactive and try to, you know, find out there and, and, and go help people, which is kind of what we've tried to do, so exactly. that's, you know. Yeah, and it's it's you know, and I always feel like I gotta qualify this discussion a little bit. I just would like to add that um, in 2003, 2002, I had a really bad case of leukemia, and it was it was cured by what they call stem cell transplant from my sister. I was told that um, I had a 50% chance of surviving for two years, and I went strictly down traditional Western medicine. And they, you know, loaded me with chemotherapy, and I got a stem cell transplant, and here I am today. I mean, I'm alive, and, and it saved my life. So it's, when I, when I start to get on the soapbox and rail too much about Western medicine, 
I, I, I need to qualify it because there are, you know, there are lots of procedures that are in place which are, which are wonderful. It just turns out that with some of these brain disorders, that's not the case. Uh, crazy stuff. Yeah. No, and, and the other thing I would like to just, because the other thing that you had mentioned is once we learn the lay of the land, once it feels scary, and yes, it is scary, but on the other hand, I do believe it's empowering. Because once you understand that, you know, there are things, there are forces at work in, the, in our healthcare system beyond good health, that puts the onus back on you. And so it's up to us. You, to, up to each of us to embrace that and go to work. Well, I mean, I think that's just a metaphor for, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure you've been uh, uh, watching the political uh, uh, yeah. hoopla that's going on, and, I, and actually that exact statement is is like what kind of goes through my mind every time I, I you know, I discuss with my wife or I look anything, I'm like, why do I feel that there's, there's nefarious forces at work here that are in, uh, you know, <laughs> that are not working for our benefit. No. Nope. Uh, Bernie Sanders made a great point. I, I heard him speak in, uh, um, I mean, not person, but he made a point that uh, 1% uh, or let's see, uh, public policy is driven by 1% of what the, the general mass actually wants. So he's like, so, you know, the public policy that we're getting put forward is not representative of actually at all of what the people really want. And so he's like in, you know, uh, you know, so figure less than 1%. So, I just thought that it was kind of an interesting point that, you know, that uh, there's, you know, we're small pawns in a greater thing and, you know, and there's different ways to manipulate it, whether it be, you know, shock, you know, with the, uh, you know, obviously Donald Trump's deal or, I mean, it's just, it's, um, it's kind of a sad deal where you kind of sit back, you take a look and you're like, I, I, you know, this is the best we have and this is the situation we're in, you know, sometimes feels a little hopeless, but then we've, you know, come into contact with people like you who actually are proactive and go out and make a difference like we're trying to do with uh, Wade's Army. So, um, you know, I, I appreciate that and uh, thank you very much. Well, thank you and congratulations on what you're doing too. I think it's this, it's largely up to, to us, you know. I think maybe it was last night too and maybe it was Bernie, I don't remember who said it last night, but social movements don't start from the top and go down. They start at the bottom and go up and sure. so that's what you guys and what we're I'm involved with. Well, I mean, we're we're kind of in the midst of a social revolution. I think so right now. I mean, where you know the the people that are our elected leaders no longer represent the populace, and I don't know how long it's been since you know that's really happened. But I mean, I know as you know, at least for us, I mean, we you know we kind of look at our elected leaders and we're like, this is the best we got. Like, where's the person? who's kind of the least crazy person or the person that actually comes out with, you know, like shooting some straight stuff or, you know, person where you're like, I'd actually like to invite this guy over to my house for dinner. Um, right. I can't, I can't really think of a, a candidate that I've, I've seen in recent years where I've been like, wow, I would actually invite this guy over to my house and I'd like to have him at a barbecue and actually talk to him more. I'd like to sit next to a plane. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, it's just, um, you know, it's, it, it's become, I, I, I think, uh, the position we're at now is things have to be so polarizing to catch anybody's attention because we're so uh, overwhelmed, inundated with, you know, with, uh, you know, everything. I mean, whether it be technology and just, you know, almost like a, a blinding effect that the only thing we notice now is the, the loudest crack or the biggest bright shining light. And so I don't know if that's a social commentary, but, you know, 
we'll, we'll see how it all pans out. Yeah. So. Yeah. You guys are too young to to miss John Kennedy, but he, there's a guy you'd like to have over. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, he. You know, uh, I. You know, I, I always have appreciated the Kennedys for the mere fact that, uh, you know, how the Kennedys made their money running as bootleggers, and you got Joe Kennedy and, uh, you know, and, and the brothers and, you know, some of that stuff. But, I mean, it's, um, I mean, you think about, like, when was, the, when was the last time we had a, you know, great leader that, you know, in a, in a, uh, a terrible time, like, you know, I always wonder, is it, um, you know, do great people appear when you need them, or is it, is it hard, you know, great times that, you know, make the individual, and, you know, you can look back in history and say, you know, we've had the right person at the right time, and you just hope whoever's coming up next is the right person at the right time. I just know that the status quo isn't working, and so you take a look, and even a guy like Bernie Sanders, who's got a different set of ideas, I mean, you know, that to me, uh, I think at this juncture might be more appealing than, you know, I don't know, uh, Donald Trump's whole deal where it's like, make America great, and then the even funnier part is hearing people come out about Ted Cruz, and how much of an asshole he is, how many people dislike him. Oh, yeah. and like, it, I mean, I, it's pretty amazing, like, how many people are like, he's a terrible person. And, you know, I mean, not that you have to be a great person to, to lead this country, but I like to believe that at least you are, you know, to be the president of the United States, you probably uh, have to make a lot of hard decisions if people don't like you, but I think you have to inherently, like, be somewhat of a, a, a man of the people, you know, but... So that's my political commentary today. I'm sure we'll cut that part out of the show. <laughs> Kelly will get on here and be like, "I'm not listening to this crap." But uh, no, I mean, I I, I think at any I, I you know, and we always say this. I think we're at such a pivotal point in our history, you know. And um, what is it, the old proverb? May you live in interesting times. We are in interesting times. That's for sure. Well, Jim, anything else you want to, any other words of wisdom you want to impart upon us, or uh, you know, anything on the Charlie Foundation, or or anything well, about Leslie Nielsen or uh, uh, Al Kilbert that you want to tell us? Well, Leslie always carried a fart machine. <laughs> he lived a long and happy life. So he, he literally did. He, he had this like a diaphragm thing that he would carry in the palm of his hand and constantly. And when he'd squeeze it, it would make the sound of a fart. And <laughs> so he... He had to be. Uh, so, he, so he would do it all the time. I mean, we would be on live TV somewhere promoting something or another, and he would do it, and he'd kind of, like, wiggle around like he was uncomfortable when he did it. He probably had the best straight delivery of anybody I've ever seen where, <laughs> yeah. where yeah. he could... Uh, uh, like deliver a line that I'm sure everybody in the room was literally like on the floor in stitches and yeah. he literally straight faced. I mean, the only other guy I've ever seen like that is Will Ferrell. Um, yeah. uh, you know, but like that, that one. And then, uh, I mean, top secret is probably one of the funnier, uh, I mean, airplane, of course. I mean, to, to this day, my brothers and I still use, uh, references from airplane, like we're like you know sitting next to or we're talking to somebody and we give the Harry Carey or like you know this guy Ted Strikered me where you're over there you remember where he's telling the story mm -hmm. on there and the people start committing suicide. <laughs> it's a so bad. So we still use some, like hey Ted Striker, don't make anybody kill themselves. So we still use. Uh, well, that's you know, great. Timeless man, dude. That uh, those great. movies are uh, like 
they still make. I mean, I, you know. Surely you can't be serious. Yeah. Well, well, with that, it's like I, I, I always think like those under movies, over over those movies, under. Those movies were made in a time where uh, you know, kind of like the Mel Brooks movies. Like Mel Brooks could never go back and make Blazing Saddles or History of the World or any of those. Right. The world was is way too politically correct today. Mm-hmm. And so you know, he, even those ones like with. Uh, uh, you know, an airplane where he's like, oh, I, I, and I can't remember the guy's name. I, pick, you know, what is it? I guess I picked the wrong week to stop sniffing glue. Yeah, uh, it was. Um, yeah, uh, dude, just some of the yeah. They, even when they yeah. come on, like you know, like beating up the uh, Hari Krishnas in the in the airport. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 where today, you know, my Dave and Jerry Zucker, who I made those movies with, we talk about that all the time, like. Not all the time. Like, where could you have uh, an airplane pilot be into pedophilia when you know that just wouldn't happen today? You never get away with it. Dude, we, no. uh, we we still have people all the time be like, you ever hang around the gymnasium after hours? <laughs> uh, you ever seen a grown man naked? I mean, and then you got Kareem in there. I mean, yeah, uh, like legend. Like, Unbelievable. I, I mean, mean and, and then you have Leslie Nielsen come in as the doctor, you know. And like, I like how he had his one go-to fart machine and just let that sucker ride for a decade. <laughs> well, you know like, what? He's got a good joke. He just it's can't Leslie let go. Nielsen, yeah. who who was actually because he he was in Dragnet, wasn't he? He was. Uh, was he no, Joe? that was Jack Webb. That's right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but Leslie, if you at one point years ago we went through this exercise, he was in a movie called The Poseidon Adventure. Kind of a real B disaster. Was, porn? was it a, a porn? No. <laughs> yeah. I'm kidding. I'm just making a joke. It was just a bad movie. And but you can kind of intercut his performance in that movie with his performance in Airplane, and it's hard to distinguish. You know, he played it so straight. <laughs> so, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, dude, and the, yeah, he's and then like all and then all the naked gun stuff, which is uh, so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, nice beaver, and then she hands it down. Oh, I had stuff <laughs> last week. I mean, like ah, like the lines, like yeah, that stuff is is some of the the funniest stuff. And uh, sadly, you know, we have um, you know, like we have young interns and kids that come and work for us or uh, whatever, and we have created this uh, hot list of movies, and we always ask them, "Have you seen this?" and their lack of movie knowledge. I think my dad talked about it once or something. Yeah, yeah. Something like, like oh, that. Um, yeah, I think my uh, – I look at him like, first of all, you guys don't know how to be funny, but – Go black out a week. Yeah. <laughs> Here's 100 movies you need to watch. And you have to watch them on VHS. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not so, talking Blu-ray yeah. or nothing. I'm talking about VHS. You know? Rewind them when you get back. <laughs> yeah. like, like, I mean, I, I remember watching it, and, that, and um, you remember when she's laying in bed with the horse, and she's like, you can let yourself out, and then the horse is laying there in bed with her. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, like I, I remember watching it, so he's like, "Why is that funny?" I'm like, "Are you are you serious? You don't get to be in bed with a horse?" Like, all right, but I, I can see what you mean. Like, there's no way you can make any of those movies. I mean, I, I literally Blazing Saddles was on a couple weeks ago, and I was I, I literally couldn't stop laughing, and I'm thinking to myself, "There's no way Mel Brooks could have made this movie today." No. Yeah, we're 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 lucky we got away with it. I was at a some function like just a couple weeks ago. And this eight-year-old, this is a humbling story. And this eight-year-old, ten-year-old boy came up to me and he said, oh, gosh, it's all airplane. I really like the show. And I said, thank you and stuff. And I said, how is it that you came to see it? And he said, my grandfather made me watch it. 
You're like, you, you, you should have looked at him and just kicked him in the ass. I'm like, get out of here, kid. You're bothering me. Uh, I, I, I just always wonder, uh, like, how you guys got Kareem in that. That was the best. Like, like talk, talk about, like, the best uh, cameo. cameo appearance. And then the best is he's, like, you know, talking about it. And the kid's like, my dad says you can't run the court anymore. He's like, tell your old man to shut up. And then they're carrying him out. And he's wearing the goggles. <laughs> Uh, actually, that part was originally written for Pete Rose, and oh. this was before Pete Rose was known to be Pete Rose, and when he was still just known as a baseball player. And um, but we filmed Airplane during the summer, so he he was playing baseball, so he wouldn't he wasn't available. So we rewrote it for Kareem and um, got it somehow got it to his agent. And he wanted, he said he'd do it if we would buy him a, a particular rug. He, he had a big rug collection. So we wrote the part for Kareem and gave him the rug. And, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and like a couple of weeks later, there was an article in Time Magazine with Kareem and the rug. Man, uh, the good old days where you got to buy a man for a rug. <laughs> yeah. You know what? That's the type of like that's the type of stuff you can't make up. You're like, hey, we had cream yeah. in the movie and we paid him with a rug. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, like uh, yeah, it's uh, that's that's pretty awesome. That's, uh, we, we, I was always in, in Jerry and David, and I were always huge Kareem fans. You know, he we were from Milwaukee originally, and he started in Milwaukee, and we were fans when he was at UCLA and stuff. So. That was the easiest dialogue in the world to write because he was, you know, always all all the knocks on him that the little boy makes in the movie. You read that every day in the paper. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I'm 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 sad that we. I mean, we I'm glad we got to talk about some good stuff, but I actually would. It would have been great to just chew your ear. Yeah, just stuff. be like so. Uh, like, um, ironically, when I played in uh, Kansas City, Paul Rudd. Uh, was a big Kansas City Chiefs fan. Oh, yeah? So, he, you know, um, so Will Shields, who I played with, would get him tickets. And so after the game, when the players park, they always come and drink beers with us. And we ended up going out to a bar and hanging out with them a bunch. And uh, he was always hilarious with uh, just some of the stories. And, like, you know, and the, the one that he kills me on was uh, Anchorman, that they would actually take their scripts home and they would rewrite the scripts trying to surprise people because, uh, like, they were just you know, trying to get, you know, like, laughs and just trying to get the crew to laugh. And, like, their whole goal was to get somebody off camera to laugh and fuck oh, up the scene. And so he goes, the one guy they could never get to break was Will Ferrell. And he said the only one they got him to break on was when he came out with the uh, Sex Panther. It's, you know, 60% of the time it works every time. Yeah. And he looked at him, he's like, that makes no sense. <laughs> and, like, he's, like, literally, he goes, dude, and he goes, what ruined the scene was that one of the camera guys started laughing. And like actually, or one of the grip guy, whoever almost dropped the boom on him, oh, and he man. goes, "That's how I knew I had him." And so it was, it was pretty funny. He said the whole movie, like the the director was so mad because he had written, you know, they put together these scripts and whatever, and these guys were going home and rewriting everything, wow. and uh, the you know, so it just, yeah, I mean, sometimes some of like the backstories like that that you never get are are really like you know, like the Korean rug story. Yeah, now. that's, yeah, that's great. One. So, well, yeah, thank you for sharing. That's awesome. Sure. So. Well, Jim, hey, man, it, it was a, it's great to talk to you on both levels, uh, you know, and I'd look forward to anything we can glean from your experience um, in terms of any of the nutrition treatment studies and uh, how we can help right. Wayne's Army really okay, move forward yeah, in our I'll, I'll, I'll send you a bunch of information for anybody who might be interested you, you, we, um, about the 
ketogenic diet and, and, and what we do, we, we do have a website. It's charliefoundation.org if anybody's interested. Yeah, well, what I'll, I'll do is uh, we'll, we'll put something up and I'll shoot you a link from Wade's Army and, you know, maybe there's something we can do in terms of synergy and, um, you know, just using you guys as a resource or, you know, vice versa. I, I, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to start to include you on this stuff just because it's, um, I mean, it's painful for me to watch to see, like, you know, this mom, like, feeding, you know, like, you know, oh, joking about, about nicknaming her little oh, boy who's 10 months old, Sugar. And that, you know, is a diet of Skittles, cotton candy, and uh, sugary yogurt. Yeah. I mean, I'm reading this stuff, and I'm like, I, I, like. I want to reach through and just. Boy, I, like, like, Luke sees me get up, and I, like, got to go walk outside around the block a little bit because I get so pissed. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, like, I, um, it, it, it's child abuse to me. Like, I agree. So, I mean, that's, I yeah. So, I mean, he's got, and, yeah. And, and the work and the traumatic brain stuff is really important, too. You know, I did, they just did, um. Uh, autopsy on Kenny Stabler's brain. Oh yeah, okay. And that came out yesterday. You know, he had CT and stuff too. So who knows? You know how many other guys in? And that's one of the fields that's being pioneered now with diet therapy. Is you know, if Kenny Stabler had gone on a ketogenic diet 30 years ago. Well, know, I mean, that's. And Earl Morrill, too. They said Earl Morrill also. I mean, that's kind of where we're at right now. I mean, the um, uh, you know, we've had really a, a string of ketogenic experts on. You know, we started with Morrow and, uh, uh, you know, Rob Wolf and Dr. Perlmutter and Ken um, Ford. Ken Ford, you know, and, and so, yeah, all these different uh, experts. And, you know, the consensus is, is, you know, to, you know, as you age and especially if you've had, you know, some you know certain amount of knocks and dings in terms of neurological damage um, that you know something like a ketogenic diet or you know even supplementing with uh, artificial ketones um, you know would definitely help these guys and then also you know, Dr. Ford made a good point that you know we could probably train you know trace a lot of the traumatic uh, brain injury back to like you know using sports drinks and Gatorade and other factors as you know oh, dosing yeah. people with, with glucose before and after uh, you, know, you, know, you know chronic oh, brain. So, that's really interesting. So yeah, we've just been kind of just trying to really just kind of hammer this home and try to get as many people as we can on. And um, you know, I think uh, it's pretty amazing when you, you know, uh, you know, most of the people we've been talking to have been kind of experts and doctors, but you know, here's a situation where you know you guys you know went out there and proactive in terms of helping your son, and uh, you know, and now been able to spread this information. So that's great. It's awesome. Uh, you know, and uh, yeah, thanks for connecting. I'll shoot you an email and. Hopefully, uh, well, hopefully we get to, uh, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're down in Orange County, so, I mean, you know, hopefully at some point we get to meet up in the future. Well, that would be great. That would be great. And, I, you know, I'd love to support you guys any way I can. I think, you know, what you're doing is terrific. Well, thank you very much, and um, yeah, that's about good for us. And, uh, Have a yeah. great weekend. Uh, Jim, see you later. Thank you. Okay, doke. Thanks, guys. See you later. All right, guys. Thanks a lot, Jim. Thank you. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Get to know the Charlie Foundation by visiting www.thecharliefoundation.org. Here you can find out about the research that is confirming what we already know about ketones and neurological function. Also, if you haven't seen Naked Gun or Airplane, take your hand, open it up, and slap yourself in the face, and then immediately find it on Netflix. Until next time, bye!